As you know, we one of our distinctives at Orchard is that we've chosen to use a team of teachers. We believe pretty strongly that multiple voices for the gospel of Christ and the gospel of the New Testament is um, best for us as a body. And so we are delighted with the team of teachers we have. This morning, we're introducing to the congregation a new teacher. And uh, this teacher is uh, Julie Cameron, who's been on our staff for a while. She uh, is our uh, website designer. She's our mobile um, technology person. Julie uh, actually writes a blog called jcblog.net that is read worldwide. Uh, She's written a couple of books. Uh, and what I did this morning to introduce Julie was I just went on her blog, and you know, on these blogs, it's like, here's what I want you to know about you, about myself, and so I'm going to read a couple of these. Here's what Julie says about herself on her blog. I'm passionate about Jesus, his word, living in his grace, using technology, and creating beautiful things, but mostly my passion is about spreading the gospel of Jesus to a world that needs him. I live with my husband in Iowa, working as a graphic and web designer. My specialties are contact, content creation, internet marketing, search optimization, and social media, all of which are ways she's helped us. I basically play all day long, she says, about her job. In my free time, I enjoy creating art and beautiful things. I like to think, so I run, because it's the physical process of clearing my head in order to process what I've read, heard, or had conversations about During the day, I enjoy capturing memories with my camera. I love to learn, study, and share, and that's obvious for anyone who's around, Julie. I'm addicted to coffee. I enjoy people. Writing and explaining scripture on this blog is my passion, and this is what wakes me up before dawn every day. Julie, we are anxious to have you come and teach us this morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being on our staff. We're looking forward to this. Thank you, Dave. What an introduction. Good morning. All right. Good morning. So this week we're in week two of a new series called Jesus Said. And last week we showed you a video of John Ortberg giving an introduction to Jesus and the impact he's made on uh, humanity from the beginning of time until now. In fact, he's had such an impact that the world would not be the same without Jesus. Now, over the summer, we're going to zoom in on some of these teachings and look at them and what he taught and what he did, Um, not merely because he was a great man, but we're going to look at these truths because Jesus was the Son of God. The reason we want to understand Jesus and who he was and look at that is because God made himself known to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews starts out this way. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he sustains all things by his word of power. Jesus, when teaching with his disciples, repeatedly said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What I've heard from the Father, I make known to you. And if you really knew me, then you would know the Father as well. So we're going to look at take a look at Jesus' teachings because Orchard's mission is to be equipped fully devoted followers of Christ. So it's impossible for that to happen unless you know who Jesus is and what he taught and how he has changed the world and humanity. Now, today I get the privilege of kicking off this series, and it's not only because nobody else wanted to follow up John Ortberg's amazing teaching last week, but rather because uh, they asked me to, and I'm honored and delighted to be able to open up the Word of God to you. 
And I'm going to share with you the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son, as many of you probably know it. Now, um, Jesus is teaching to his normal groups of people. He's teaching to sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. And they begin grumbling and complaining about how he always associates and eats with sinners. And so he tells this parable um, and a re- as a rebuttal to the, the Pharisees' complaints about them. Now, this parable is in, found in a group of three parables, and it's in Luke 15. So go ahead and open your Bibles or grab a pew Bible and open up, because I'm going to walk you through that. It's found in a group of three parables, and the other two being the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of um, the lost coin, and then he teaches the parable of the lost son. Um, and so all three of these parables are a rebuttal to the Pharisees, and all three of them have a profound theme on how God values people, how he seeks out people who are lost and woos them, draws them in. All three have a redemption theme on how God pursues us, And all three were told as a rebuttal to the Pharisees' complaints that he associated with sinners. So there's some profound things that he is teaching here. And in the parable of the lost son, where I'm going to focus on today, he concludes with making a statement against the Pharisees and how they related to God. Now, if you've heard this story before, I'm sure you've heard it from the perspective of the lost son, how he's wandered away, squandered his wealth, and returning to find grace, love, and acceptance, which is true and marvelous and a wonderful picture of God. But Jesus told these in response to the Pharisees. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the older son's response to the younger son's return to see what we can understand about God in this, in this context. So here's a synopsis of the story in case it's been a while since you've read it or maybe you've never heard it before. So a man has two sons. The younger son goes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And the father divides his property up, gives it to his sons. The younger son takes his inheritance and he goes off and he squanders it on wild living. Now the King James Bible calls it riotous living. And I remember as a little kid hearing this story, not having any clue what that word meant, but I knew it was not good. He squandered it all. So at the end of it, he winds up destitute. He comes back to his father to seek forgiveness and be restored to sonship. And the older son gets angry about it and refuses to join the celebration. And the father goes out to treat him also. So that's a short overview of the story. Um, What I want you to focus on, or what we're going to focus on today, is the older son's response to the younger brother's return. Um, Because many of us are like this older brother. Maybe you've been a prodigal, maybe you haven't. And maybe you've sat in church a long time, um, and we we need to understand and relate to what the father in the story reveals about God's heart for his kids. And there's two sons in the story. So I have an objective of three things. I want you to take three things away with you today, and they're in your bulletin. But the first thing I want you to take away today is that God places incredible value on you. In fact, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and he places such a value on you um, that this story rings that true loud and clear. Secondly, Jesus said, everything I have is yours. And third, ownership or stewardship is what you do, and owner is who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, as Dave said, I work, I work for Orchard. I've been here a few months, but I want to tell you about my interview process with Orchard because it was kind of long. In fact, I had three 
meetings with Dave Bart- Bartlett and Pat Ayler before I had even um, had the official interview, which consisted of interviewing with a panel of people just to make it nerve-wracking. But during the course of these conversations, Dave Bartlett had asked me a series of questions um, that made me think. So a lot of the questioning that he asked during this interview is, If I came to Orchard, what would I do? How would I structure my day? What skills, gifts, and passions would I bring to Orchard? In other words, how would I help Orchard fulfill its mission? Pretty good questions. Now, I'd been interviewing a lot of other places at the time, and so their line of questionings was more aligned with my background, my work experience, my job experience. And then most of the interview was focused on the position, what the job entailed, and what they would need me to do if I came to work from them. You see, at the end, there was such a desire for me to come to work for Orchard because of this idea of ownership. Dave and Pat wanted to empower me to take a job, take a position, and make it my own, to bring my skills to advance the kingdom, to advance and utilize the mission of Orchard and use my skills to bring that to pass. Now, my response after coming here is to be a good steward. I show up when I'm supposed to be. I work hard when I'm here. I'm on task. I get things done. Um, but the idea is I can take my skills and passions and I can dream big. I can have vision and I can put it into action and see it come to pass. There's a huge difference. So for me, the perspective of ownership to have some skin in the game is a whole lot better than stewarding somebody else's dream. Um, If Dave and Pat hadn't been so willing to empower me, I wouldn't have vision. And without vision, I'd merely have a job and not a mission and a calling in life. Do you see the difference? Now, see, the kingdom of God works the same way. Jesus said, everything I have is yours, which makes you an owner. Now, ownership is a position or an identity. It's who you are at your core. The response is stewardship, but ownership is what gives you vision. It's what gives you a calling. It's what gives you a mission and the fuel for that mission. Now, we're going to take a look at this from the idea of Jesus, where he taught it, because this idea originated with him. It was so radical that the idea of ownership came in response to the Pharisees' complaints that he ate and associated with sinners. Now, I'm going to walk you through the story I found in Luke 15, and hopefully you found it. Um, And we're going to look at each person's in the story, their actions and their response, which shows us the perspective that they had of who they saw themselves as in that family. Now, first, we're going to take a look at the younger son. One day, he goes to his father, and this is what he says in verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, did you catch that? He said, give me my share. He didn't say, give me a share or give me what you're planning on leaving me or even give me what you owe me for working for you all these years. No, he said, give me my share. Now, the Jews had strict inheritance laws. Proverbs says a good person leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Not do you just have to provide for your children, but your children's children. And according to the inheritance laws, the older son got a double portion than everybody else because he was the sign of his father's strength. So the older son gets twice the amount that everybody else gets. So the younger son goes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And his father sees it as reasonable. And so he divides up his property between them, between both sons. 
he splits it up. The older son gets double portion and the younger son gets his portion, which is very interesting. Now, if you find, if you know the rest of the story, the younger son takes his inheritance, he goes off and he squanders everything. He ends up living destitute in some foreign land. So he decides, he comes to senses and decides it's probably better to go back to my father's household where he treats his servants real well rather than slaving here in the country, hiring myself as a servant to someone who doesn't care about me. So he picks himself off, up, he decides to go back home and he starts planning along the way on what he's going to say to his father. Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. He's working the speech up and he goes home. Now, we're going to look at the father's response, but first I got to tell you what the younger son did right in all of this, because a lot of times we focus on what he did wrong. This is what he did right. First, he saw his inheritance as his. He saw himself as an owner in the family with rights to everything. He was an heir of the family, and so he knew he had claim to things. And so he made a reasonable request to his father, and his father granted it because he was a son, he was an heir, and he had rights to everything. Now, secondly, he did this right. He knew when he screwed up that his father was going to forgive him, and so he goes back. He knew his father's good, kind heart, and his intentions towards him was love, and so he makes the decision to go back and seek forgiveness. That's an important thing to know about your father. If you're in a position where you've squandered your fortune and you need to go back and, and live with him again. Now let's take a look at the father, because this is what the father um, did. He already responded, as I said, to his younger son's request, divided up the property, and granted it. Now fast forward, the younger son's coming back, he's destitute, and this is what the father does in verse 20. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, the father didn't even get home, or the son didn't even get home, and the father once again responds to his son. He runs out to welcome him and to greet him and bring him back home. While he was still a long ways off, the father saw him and had compassion with him and ran out to get him. Now the son starts with a speech, you know, he's asking forgiveness, I haven't, I've sinned, make me like one of your servants. And the father disregards all of it. And look what he does in verse 22. It says, the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. So the father didn't just give those things to the son because he was a mess and needed cleaned up. No, see, those things were a sign of who he was as a son and an heir in that household. He gave it to him to restore him. Now, it was just as much for the servants in that household as it was for the son. You see, it was okay for the son to come back and say, make me like one of your servants. But that wasn't good enough for the father. The father would never not consider restoring his son to his rightful place as an heir in that household. That's incredible. So he said, put a ring on his finger, give him the sandals, and put the best robe on him. As far as he's back, the son's restored. He's rightful owner again in the house. They're celebrating. They're going to have a party. But not everyone's happy about this because the older brother is still off and angry that, at the younger son's return. Now, 
My in-laws used to live in Kansas City, and we would go down there all the time to visit them. So when we'd get there, my mother-in-law was so cute, when at the end of our trip, she would always try and slip us some cash. Now, she had this, she was about this big, literally, and she had this cute little way of trying to slip us cash real hush-hush. Now, it was adorable, but you couldn't resist her. She was very strong-willed. In fact, um, every time we went down there, we left with a full tank of gas, a clean car, and $50 more than we had on the way down. Now, my, my husband was used to this, so we would go down. We would never stop for gas on the way down, and we'd, like, cruise into town in their driveway on fumes. The gas light was always on. And then within five minutes of getting there, he would be going through every cupboard in the kitchen. He'd be checking out every nook and cranny, and he'd be sampling every covered dish in the fridge. She was a good cook, but it was ridiculous. It was quirky. He just, like, would say hello and go into the kitchen and start eating. Now, me, on the other hand... I I ate when I was invited to mealtimes. Um, if I went down by myself, I would fill up like right outside Kansas City so that I would have a, pretty much a full tank when I got there. And I would try never to take the money. Now, we, I would refuse it over and over and over until eventually I relented because she was a lot more stubborn than I was. Um, so that was, that was the difference in the two of us. Now, when she was dying... I had the chance, we were going back and forth to Kansas City all the time, and she was in and out of the hospitals. And when she was dying, I had the chance to sit with her in the hospital bed and read scripture to her and pray with her. And she told me that I was the daughter she never had. You see, she had four children, two of which died at eight months old, one of which was a daughter. So she never had the privilege of having a daughter, of raising one. But instead of raising one, when the moment I married her son, she adopted me fully into her life. I became the daughter that she always wanted and never had. She never considered me a daughter-in-law. In fact, I never remember her introducing me one time as a daughter-in-law, always as her daughter. This is why she afforded me the same rights and privileges as her own children, because this is how she cared for her grown children. She filled up their car tanks or their gas tanks. She cleaned their car and she made sure they had some money for the way home. When I realized this, that she never under, she never considered me a daughter or never considered me a daughter-in-law, only a daughter. Oh, how I would have done things differently. It was a profound moment in my life when I knew that my place in that family was as her daughter and as an heir, not as an outsider. So the younger son's back. The celebration has begun. And the older son hears music from the outskirts. And he calls over another servant to learn what's going on. The servant comes and tells him that your brother's home and there's a celebration. Don't you find it odd that the servant knows what's going on before the eldest in that household? I mean, the younger sons come back. They've made preparations. They're starting to plan. They're dressing. They're cooking for the event. And they start celebrating. And the older son is so far out in the outskirts that he hears music and calls another servant over to find what's going on. That's odd to me. Don't you find it odd that the oldest son, who's the heir, who should be managing and administering the family business from the center with his father, learns is so far out that he doesn't know that the son's even come back. 
The father saw the son coming back and ran out to greet him, but the oldest son is nowhere around. He is out working as a servant out in the outskirts. To me, that's odd. So he, what he does is he boycotts the party. Again, his father responds to him in the exact same way as he responded to the younger son. He goes out to meet him and to entreat him to come back and take his rightful place as a son and an heir in that family and to join in the celebration. But it's shocking that the older son's perspective in all of this, and by his own words, we, admit, he, we see how he saw himself in that family. If you look at verse 39, this is what the older son responds to the father with. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you nev- and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours who has squandered your property on prostitutes, I mean, how did he know, right? He squandered your property with prostitutes. He comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. Did you catch that? He thought of everything as his father's. He didn't take any ownership in it. He thought he needed permission from the father to take a vacation or to celebrate with his friends, even though experience told him that the father willingly gave him everything he had. Look at the father's response in verse 31. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. I can imagine how hurt the father must have been to hear this accusation from his son when he willingly gave him everything so freely. I'm sure the father longed to have his son take his rightful place at his side as a son and an heir and an owner of that property. You see, the oldest son was a great steward. He used his time and his talents to serve well. He did it faithfully. He hardly ever complained, and he never asked for anything. But yet when it came down to it, he missed out on everything because he never put skin in the game. He never saw himself as an owner in that family. The father, on the other hand, saw him as an owner, which is why he gave him everything and withheld nothing from him. And he was surprised at his younger son's claim that he had never been given anything. And the father responds in this way, everything I have is yours. Now, when I got my first place, I was 19, I moved out and I rented this cute little place in Waterloo. The bones of the house was adorable, but my bedroom was bubblegum pink, like Pepto-Bismol pink. It was terrible. One of the bedrooms was smurf blue, like you had to wear sunglasses to even be in that room. It was so bright. The living room and the bathroom were peach. The kitchen was yellow and had brown, non-working appliances. And in the basement, there was no heating or air conditioning system. So it made it was just unusable in the wintertime. Now, I lived there a couple years, and I mowed the lawn, and I shoveled the snow, and I took really good care of the place, and I always paid my rent on time. But through that whole course of the time, I never took ownership in it. I never planted flowers. I never decorated. I never painted. And I never hung anything up on the walls. Now, if any of you know me, you know that's just crazy because I exaggerate when I decorate. I go all out. But I never did anything to it because it was not mine. And I was making plans to buy. Now, fast forward a couple years, I got married, and my husband and I bought our first place in Cedar Falls. Now, it was the same kind of deal. You walked in, the living room was mint green, and it was attached to a kitchen that was burgundy. It was just an oddly colored mix of spaces, and it made no sense. Day one, 
that I got in there and the painting started. In fact, I did this overlapping square feature in my kitchen that was a showstopper. Everyone who came into the house, whether they liked it or not, had to stop and ask about this artistic masterpiece. And it took me two weeks to do. Every night after work for hours, I spent painting these overlapping squares that were magnificent. And then I went room by room through the house, saved up to buy furniture, painted, decorated, made artwork for the house, tore out walls, drove my husband crazy. But we made the place our own because every day when I came in, I felt a sense of pride walking into the house. I enjoyed it. We lived there and it was wonderful. I enjoyed inviting my friends and family over um, and I cried when we sold it. The point is, is the house had such a meaning for me because I owned it. My name was on, on the deed. I never owned the first property, and I didn't care anything about it besides being a good steward. Now, I was a good steward with my new house, but the perspective was because I had ownership in the house. You see, ownership is an attitude. It's the fuel that brings vision to pass. You have a mission that only you can fulfill in life. Do you know what it is? You see, God's counting on you to fulfill the mission, not just steward it well, but to bring it to pass. And we have to take ownership in that because we'll never get from point A to point B unless we have that. Stewardship is what you do, but an owner is who you are in Christ. It's what will, and not having this perspective is what will defeat you from ever completing that mission. If you never put skin in the game, you'll never get there. That's what was Jesus' criticism back to the Pharisees when they complained about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. You see, they were outsiders, and they never enjoyed the fellowship of the Father. And they were jealous of those who saw it and were drawn close. Jesus said, everything I have is yours. He's given you a blank check today to enjoy the position he's made you for. He's given you a mission, but you have to have the vision to see it come to pass. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for giving us the position of ownership because you've made us an heir in the kingdom. Sons and daughters, you've given us a mission and you're given us the position to make it come to pass. Lord, I just ask that you reaffirm to your precious people the vision and calling that you have on their lives. Let this truth penetrate deep so that they can leave here today knowing that they were created with a purpose and that you have a vision and a mission for them. In Jesus' name, amen.